Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, and I'm here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teacher at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we've been going through the book of Isaiah chapter by chapter. If you've been following along, you've made it now through seven chapters of Isaiah, and we're coming in in the middle of a narrative section of the scripture. That means that we've been going through a story section of the last couple chapters where we're looking at Isaiah and some characters and some kings. Uh, so the cool thing is you can actually find some of these characters in other books in your Bible. You can go to Second uh, Kings, for instance, and learn about Ahaz, as well as uh, about Isaiah and later on Hezekiah. So... Uh, if you ever want some extra um, homework to do, go and read read about those kings in those books as well. But today is going to be interesting because we've got a bit of a cliffhanger from the chapter before. Uh, if you've listened to Isaiah 7, you know I talked about a lot of the different ways that prophecy works throughout Scripture and through the Old Testament prophets. You've noticed that there is what's called this near and far fulfillment where Isaiah promised this child to be born. And here in Isaiah 8, we have this child being born maybe through Isaiah, and that has been of some debate, and you can check that out in uh, the last episode where I go and talk about that. But here we have this child that is born through Isaiah, and there's a little bit of confusion here with this chapter that I think um, is going to be helpful to kind of walk through because a lot of the th times in prophecy we kind of expect the entire chapter to have like one cohesive narrative and sometimes some of the prophetic books especially when we get to the book of Jeremiah for instance have sections in which you can tell that they were copy and pasted almost from different writings that Isaiah had at the different times and so this is one of those chapters where we have a beginning section uh, beginning with uh, the conclusion I think of chapter 7 and then we have a section where Isaiah is speaking uh, from the Lord and calls people to uh, a really beautiful poetic uh, metaphor that I'll talk about in a second and then the final section is a completely different idea as well and so there's really three different segments in Isaiah 8 and if you try and read all three trying to figure out how these all three kind of work together um, that can be a bit of a difficult challenge and I think that these are best read as separate segments uh, that you then are uh, supposed to take into one cohesive theme so I'll walk through it that way as this kind of part one part two and part three of this chapter and hopefully that'll uh, give you a bit more clear-headedness when it comes to this chapter because it can be kind of difficult and you can be like, well, why is he mentioning this and this bit and this and that bit? So uh, hopefully that helps and uh, let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. 
So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jerobekiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria, with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah he will be. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Then someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and, looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So I think prophecy is usually where I start losing people when it comes to the book of Isaiah. At 
some point along this journey, you get to the point where you're just like, why this and why that? And it becomes really confusing. So I'm going to try and do my best to kind of explain some of the things that are going on here. Uh, and hopefully uh, we'll get through this and you still want to read more because I do think that this is so rich. And it's not that uh, it's something that's in, uh, what's the word? It's not something that's uh, a bad communication or anything like that it's just that in their time frame they had a different way of writing and sometimes when the ways that they wrote are very foreign to the ways that we think of writing we like things to be very chronological we like things to be very orderly when we write we like to start with the beginning and then end with the end whereas uh, the prophets in the old testament did not do that they were very focused on repetition and uh, more on theme and if you think about it this makes sense because if you are an oral tradition that means like if you're a tradition that primarily memorized a lot of these texts through um uh, sounds and through memorization more so than by writing things down you're going to clump things together that have a similar theme and idea versus doing it chronologically which can be really hard and uh, to memorize and so it's a lot easier to memorize things in a similar vein than it is to memorize like a whole story in a very chronological start to finish kind of way and so that's kind of how they did a lot of their writings and things was we're going to group a bunch of ideas together uh, that may have been written at different times and we're going to talk about those and then we're going to group all these ideas together and we're going to talk about those so sometimes it can get confusing like I said but uh, at that I think it can help if you know why they're doing what they're doing and it is actually really beautiful one of the first things I'll start with is uh, of course we have this really awkward beginning where uh, uh, Isaiah calls in a couple witnesses as he makes love to the prophetess a lot of people assume that the prophetess is um, his wife um, there is no real mention of this though uh, it's just kind of implied based off of the fact that Isaiah is a prophet and so of course you know his wife is probably going to be a prophetess um, and I do think it is noteworthy to note that um, even in this time where they considered uh, women to be even a little lower status than men, uh, the name given to this woman is a prophetess, um, which is uh, very, very controversial, even in their time, I would say. Um, think of the same thing as um, Deborah and judges being considered a judge. Um, many of these types of things, in their culture at least, are a little different. So here we even see a bit of the um, progressiveness, I guess I would say, of Isaiah, um, uh, in this moment. Another thing I'll point out too is that the name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz um, means uh, that it will be quick to plunder or swift to spoil, meaning that um, in their time they would plunder armies or spoil armies um, and uh, essentially receive a lot of the different uh, goods that that country had and they would come in and wipe out their agricultural things and take all their grain and then leave them uh, basically destitute because they had taken all their food. And so the name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz means that Israel and Samaria are going to be quick to plunder. And remember the full context of this that I talked about in Isaiah chapter 7 is that Judah is being attacked by Samaria, that would be their brother Israel, and 
Aram and uh, in uh, Syria, uh, in Damascus. And so these two are uh, basically attacking Judah, and God is promising to Ahaz, the king of Judah, that these two, he doesn't need to worry about them, that they are going to get wiped out and that they are going to be mehar shalal hachbaz, uh, meaning swift to plunder, and it'll be over before you know it, which is pretty pretty powerful if you think about it. God is basically telling this evil king in Judah, hey, don't worry about these two kings that are about to attack you. They're nothing. They're absolutely nothing. They'll be gone within a winter almost. And uh, he's going through a very vivid um, way of doing that by telling Isaiah to (laughs) make love to his wife, prophetess, whatever you want to call her, and uh, have this son that they'll name quick to plunder as a sign of how easy it's going to be for these two kings to be wiped out and that Ahaz is safe and secure because of his God. Um, And that's, again, really powerful. And that's something you'll see in this uh, prophetic books a lot is that God is very interested in not just telling people what's going to happen, but he's interested in showing them. And oftentimes he'll make his prophets do things that are almost a living out of the thing that's going to happen. And it's almost like a small living out. And if you know your new Testament, this is where I think we start to get the beginning of parables is in these passages in Isaiah. Um, and you begin to see God almost communicating through stories to present a point to this people group. And so a lot of people think that Jesus telling parables in the New Testament is kind of like a new thing, like it's just kind of random that he comes on the scene and starts talking parables. But honestly, if you know your prophetic books and you know Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you know that this is kind of on point for what God does, that he oftentimes will tell stories, um, oftentimes through Isaiah doing things with his wife and uh, talking to Ahaz and all of this different types of things. Um, And all of that is meant to be a symbol or a parable of what's going to happen in the future. And so hopefully that helps a little bit for your understanding of how these prophetic books work is a lot of times they're parables. Now, of course, the question you might be asking is, well, did this really happen? And I will quote a very popular Bible scholar on that question. Um, This guy's name is Tim Mackey. He's the founder, co-founder of the Bible Project, who has way more interesting videos than anything I could ever do. Um, But whenever anybody asks him the question, well, well, is, did a parable really happen or didn't happen? You know, all this different types of things. He will always say, I don't know if the biblical texts are trying to answer that question. And I think that's the case here is maybe Isaiah made love to his wife. Maybe he didn't. Uh, maybe this is just all symbolic. But um, wh- whatever you come down on that, I personally come down on, I think it actually did happen. Uh, but however you come down on it, I don't think the Bible gives us a window into that as much as we might think it does. So uh, hopefully that helps a little bit. Um, The next section I'll talk about is the section after this, uh, which uh, starts in verse 5, where it says, um, the Lord spoke to me again. And this is meant in your Bibles to tell you, hey, this is a break in the normal uh, conversation and in the normal um, narrative, and we're going to do something different now. So we've got the Lord spoke to me again, and then he goes into this new section, which is kind of the middle section. And this is what I would call part two of Isaiah chapter 8. In part two, you see the main theme in this section is water. And I haven't talked about water a lot on this uh, podcast yet, so I'll give some space for it here. In the Old Testament uh 
in general, water was generally considered both bad and good. Um, they had this concept of salt water being evil because whenever people went out to sea, they were liable to get swept away by a storm and destroyed. And they even had this mythical sea monster called the Leviathan that would rise up out of the ocean and destroy ships and things. And so they often thought of the salt water as evil. But then they had this other view of water, which was fresh water, and they thought that fresh water was beautiful and life-giving and brought uh, water that people could drink. Uh, and so water had this kind of dual symbolic meaning for a lot of these people in this time. It could either be really good or really bad. And what happened in uh, the growing of the Old Testament is a lot of times enemies, uh, when they would come and be a, uh, attack um, Israel, uh, they would be personified as salt water or waves even coming. And we even use this kind of metaphorical language today when we talk, uh, talk about things that are bad happening. We might say, man, it came over us like a wave, you know, and uh, it just the metaphor there is implying that there's this salt ocean that's just so humongous and huge, and there's these huge waves that are just going to come and completely destroy it, right? And so that is kind of the metaphor that this these passages are playing with. So you notice in verse 6 he says, because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Rezin and Ramalia, if you don't remember, are the kings of Samaria and Damascus. Um then because they've rejected these waters, the they're going to get a different kind of water. They're going to get the salt water, the flood waters of the Euphrates. Um, Euphrates isn't salt water f- per se, but the idea is still present in here is that the idea is that they, since they rejected the nice water, the pure water, um, the water that was going to uh, uh, uh bring them hope and joy and bring them life, since they rejected that, they're going to get the bad water, the, the evil um, nations that are going to come and overwhelm them. And the reason it uses Euphrates here instead of the ocean is because the Euphrates runs along uh, the city of Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria. And so basically he's using a, a, the logistic location of where these uh, where Assyria is located and saying well since you re- uh, since you uh, rejected the good water you're going to get this water from Assyria that's going to overflow everything run its banks it's going to sweep over and notice what's interesting is in verse 8 he does say to Ahaz which I think is very telling he says and sweep on into Judah swirling over it and so it's not just going to take out uh, Israel and um, Aram or Syria, it's going to take out also Judah. And so this is, uh, once again, we see that God is telling Ahaz, hey, don't worry about these two northern kings. They're, they're going to be nothing. Don't worry about them. But at the same time, he is also prophesying the doom of Ahaz as well. And what's interesting about this, if you remember from a- uh, Isaiah 7, is that Ahaz really relies on Assyria. He thinks Assyria is going to be his best bud, that they're going to be good together, and they're going to take out these two kings, and then they'll live in harmony and kumbaya, right? And instead, the very thing that Ahaz is putting his salvation in is what's going to come through and also wipe him out. And I think that's really interesting. The fa- The final thing I'll point out in this section, which is really 
really cool is this last part in verse 8 where it says, its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. Now remember, Emmanuel has two meanings. Uh, Emmanuel is actually just a Hebrew word, um, and the actual meaning of that word is God with us. And you probably know that since you uh, went through Isaiah 7. But uh, oftentimes translators have a choice between ever using the name or saying God with us. So you could read the ending of chap- of the verse of 8 as its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, God with us. And I think this is kind of the what's tying all of these different passages together is that yes, these people are going to overwhelm Judah and it's going to cover the breadth of the land. And this last little line is really interesting because the outspread wings covering the breadth of the land, because it's all now covered with water from Assyria, this is calling back to Genesis 1-2, where there is the Holy Spirit, which uh, hovers over the waters. And that word hover is actually uh, a word that's only used of birds flocking over something. And so this whole, its outspread wings will cover over the breadth of the land is indicating back to Genesis 1-2 that God with us or Emmanuel will be like the Holy Spirit hovering over the land, uh, which is now covered in water. And so you can see even here is this reversal going back to Genesis 1-1, where he's basically going to do a restart of creation, and he's going to wipe out this Judah and Israel and Syria with Assyria as the waters. And once the waters come and wipe out everybody, then Emmanuel will outspread its wings and it will cover the breadth of the land. And so that's kind of why this verse is might seem out of place here with the rest of it. But what he's doing here is kind of relating it back to Genesis 1-2 and saying, hey, this is re- redo, restart, re- new creation. So hopefully that helps in understanding that. Um, so we'll go on to the final and third section of this now, uh, which I think is one of the more uh, interesting sections uh, and has a little bit of implication for um, some of the things that are happening today. So he says um, in this section, starting in verse 11, this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now, I think some of you probably already can guess where I'm going to go with this one, just with current events and everything like that. And I don't want to, you know, shame anyone or point out any fingers or anything, but I do think it's really telling that even in this time, they struggled with conspiracy theories, and they struggled with people not understanding um, truth, and I think it's really telling what he says is the root cause of people um, going into conspiracy theories, and that is that they are fearing something that they shouldn't be fearing. The only thing they should fear is the Lord, and yet they're fearing something else. And that's what he tells them. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. And so, you know, I'm just going to leave that there as a just an open-hanging question of what are you fearing in your life? And is that leading you down a route that some might call a conspiracy theory? Are you fearing government? Are you fearing um, medical science? Are you fearing science in general? Are you fearing 
any of these different powers that seem to have huge sway over culture. And if that is causing you to go down some conspiracy rabbit trails, I think these verses have something to say about it. And um, I'm not in a place to judge your life or where you're at, but I do think these verses are. And I do think that there is a call here to put your fear in one thing alone and let that fear guide you, which is the fear of the Lord Almighty. That's all I'll say about that for right now. Um, as we move on through into the next section of this uh passage, I have noticed that there is an interesting tie-in with um, the book of Matthew again. And if you remember from Isaiah 7 and maybe even 6, I said that uh, Matthew, more than any other of the Gospels, pulls from Isaiah and seems as if he's writing the book of Matthew with Isaiah over on his right-hand corner table, always referencing it and always pulling verses from it. And here, once again, we have this uh, section in which um, God is then described as someone that is going to cause people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Uh, and if you think about you know, Judah at this time, this is very true. It's that the people that are speaking truth are the ones that are going to cause uh, others to be a snare and a trap. And God, in this case, is the one speaking truth to these people groups, and they're not going to listen to him. And so they are going to be the thing that makes them, it's going to be the thing that makes them stumble. And this is a tie-in back to Isaiah 6 again, where, remember, Isaiah's entire message, his whole point in his message is not to make them repent. There is no call to repentance, really. Um, the basic call is that they're going to not agree with what Isaiah is saying, and Isaiah is going to die in some capacity as a failure because people won't listen to him. And so the main thought that uh, is conspiring here against these people is that they're being presented with something that is going to make them hate God. Uh, and that is the same theme that uh, Matthew picks up when uh, he writes in Matthew 21, verse 42. And this is something that Jesus said, actually. Um, and it's something that uh, I think that is so powerful in that um, the stone which the builders rejected um, has now become the cornerstone. And if you think about that, that's where we get all these different songs about cornerstone and all these things. Um, and it's even, again, reiterated in First Peter 2. Um, where we see this again. But the whole concept is that um, a stone um, is going to cause people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Uh, and I think that that's so powerful. It's this image of uh, lifting a big, huge boulder. And it's so heavy. It's such a huge and heavy weight that you just fall over because it's so heavy. And what's crazy about that is the Hebrew word for glory can also mean heavy. Um, and so this idea of heaviness or glory um, is basically what's being pronounced here is God is so glorious that it's going to make people stumble. Um, this rock is so glorious or heavy that it's going to be make them stumble. And I think that's just so powerful is that this, you know, the idea of weight, when you, when I say, you know, something really uh, profound, a lot of people will say, oh, that's heavy, man. You know, like that's, that's deep even. Uh, it's this language that we have of things having weight and causing us to even buckle down a little bit and, you know, bend over uh, uh, in response to that truth. And so that's the metaphor that's being displayed here is this idea of God being a person that is so uh, heavy 
and a stone that is going to make these people stumble and a rock that's going to make them fall um, because he's so glorious. And I think that's just so powerful. Um, the last thing I'll talk about is this ending section here um, where uh, he talks about mediums and spiritists. And again, you can, might be asking yourself, man, this is so random. Why, why do we bring this right into the middle of all, all of this stuff about you know weight and things? But remember, again, that Isaiah is not necessarily trying to uh, give you a chronology of events. What Isaiah is doing is he's addressing specific issues that he's finding in this culture. And so he's talking a lot in this beginning section about how they're looking to Assyria for help and Assyria is actually going to be their downfall. And uh, God is in some sense going to be their downfall, even if they're looking for help, uh, to help from him because God is done with them and he is going to uh, remove this people from the land and he's going to start over. This last section then is, I think, one of the... um, moments in scripture where the author is kind of giving you a hint as to why is God so harsh? Why is God dealing so harshly with this people? And if you go and look in some of the uh, uh, books of the law, like in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, for instance, some of the most strongly worded um, things that people are not supposed to do are related to consulting with the dead. It's just a natural part of their scriptures and of the uh, Torah in the Old Testament is that when people mess with the dead and when they consult the dead and when they uh, involve themselves in any type of thing in which they're messing with people that have passed on, um, it's a no-no. And there are a couple reasons for that. In Leviticus, for instance, the dead um, are considered unclean. And uh, for most of the Israelites, they are to go through this process of being unclean, uh, of being clean. And so uh, avoiding the dead is in some shape or form, anybody that tends to, you know, deal in calling up the dead is in essence unclean because they're going through all of these rituals to bring them back and um, all of this stuff that's just unclean considering um, what the law says. And so from that perspective, it's just not good to do. But on the other uh, hand, too, this is often where there have been a lot of different philosophies of this, but um, consulting the dead is just not a good idea. It can bring in uh, many spirits that are maybe not the dead, even the medium that um, uh, brings up Samuel in um, First Samuel. <laughs> that's a fun story. If you don't know that's in there, it's really interesting. Um, but uh, even the medium there doesn't is really shocked at the occurrence of Samuel arising and honestly acts as if she doesn't even know what's happening. And so it's just not a good thing to get into because you don't know what you're going to get into and uh, you can invite things that are not good. So all of this uh, brings us to this section where he's telling this people that consulting these mediums and spirits uh, is a bad idea. And the main thing that he points out, which I think is amazing is that the reason it's so bad is because instead of consulting God like they should, they're going to their dead brothers and dead sisters and dead relatives to consult them. Uh, and that just it, it's just so um, offensive to God. It's like, look, I'm alive, right? You know, I'm the God of the universe. I'm creating things. Why are you trying to consult some 
dead brother or dead sister about these things when you could talk directly to me. Um, and, you know, if you read the story of Saul and why Saul wants to talk to Samuel, the whole reason he wants to talk to Samuel in that story is because he doesn't want to talk to God. Um, he knows that God doesn't like him. And he even says so to Samuel as he knows that God is not happy with him. And so it's kind of a people group of people that know that they're in the wrong with God. And instead of stu- uh, instead of asking for forgiveness from God, they stubbornly say, no, we're just not going to deal with God anymore. And we're going to go and talk to these dead people. Um, and I just think that that's so awful. Uh, it's, it's, it's turning away the love of God for something that is dead, you know? And I think you can think about the metaphor in that is just how often in life do we often turn away from God to a path that leads to death, you know? And so that's just something that I think at the ending is Isaiah telling us, look, this people, this is what they're doing, and this is what I'm calling out, and this is why God's so harsh on them right now. So hopefully that gives you a full, broader context of the book of Isaiah, and uh, I hope that you really enjoyed this passage. This was really fun to go through. It's also a little bit longer just because there's so much in here. Um, But thank you so much for tuning in, and next week we'll continue on. Thanks. Thanks.